0: Good morning. You can take your Bible and meet me in Matthew chapter 7. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. I'm excited about the, um, you know, if you've been here recently, but even over the course of many years, I'm just excited about the continued opportunities that the Lord provides for us uh, for mission in that... um, Here we've had Andre and Becky return from Honduras, right as uh, Caroline's getting ready to leave for Spain, and then in a couple of weeks, uh, there'll be four of us leaving for Zambia, and uh, just excited about how God is stirring our hearts in that way, and providing opportunities in that way. glad to be part of it, and and Budge, I just want to say, where did you go, Budge? Where are you sitting now? You went, oh, you're doing the offering. You see, he's such a faithful guy. Um, I love that part of of Budge's prayer when he he was praying for Caroline and, and their team and asked that God would help them to be present in the moment with what God is doing there with those people at this time and that they would just be entering into what God is already doing, the good works that he's already prepared and I just have to say that I want to kind of piggyback off of that prayer and confess my desire and encourage you to make that your own. That, that even in your day today, that, that we could just be very much attuned to the Spirit of God and to the people He has us interacting with to the circumstances of the moment, trusting him to provide words to say or things to do or when to not say or not do, because we know that he's preparing good works for us as well. So Matthew chapter 7. Last week we considered uh, the call to discipleship that we've been called by God to proclaim the beauty and wonder and truth of Jesus Christ while also working to win people to Christ and build them up in Christ and uh, present them complete in Christ It is a high calling, as we considered, and it is a hard calling, and yet despite the many hardships along the way, it is an incredibly joyous calling, one filled with divine purpose and eternal value, and today I want to consider the need for discipleship. I want to move from the call to the need that the call to proclaim Christ and present people Complete in Christ is not to be understood as optional, but necessary. Not for some people only, but for all. And to help us grasp this need, I've chosen as our text today a passage found here in Matthew chapter 7 that concludes what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was given by Jesus near the beginning of His ministry, His earthly ministry, and in many ways it set the tone for His ministry. It is a sermon of comparisons and contrasts in which Jesus took common beliefs of the day and compared them to the ways and thoughts of God highlighting the differences between our values and God's, between how we view life and life from God's perspective. And so in this sermon, we find the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Golden Rule. In this sermon, Jesus addresses the inner issues of anger, lust, and worry, while also exhorting us to love our enemies, give to the needy, and judge not others hypocritically. In this sermon, Jesus teaches us about ourselves, about God, and hear this, about how to relate with God on His terms. So it's not surprising that Jesus concludes this sermon with a call to faith. Now at first glance, as we will soon see, it may not appear like a typical call to faith, but trust me, it is a call to faith nonetheless. For in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 27, with the final words of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to place our trust in him. He's calling us to turn from our own religious assumptions and preconceptions. And by calling us in this way, he urges us to assess our lives, avoid empty religion, fully entrust ourselves to him and help others do the same. So let's read this together. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21, Jesus says, hear these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. say that again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Amen. Father, we thank You for these moments that we share yet again this week, this Lord's Day. And as we come before Your Word, we thank You for speaking Honestly and openly with us. You can do no other, for with you there is no hint of falsehood. And so you have given us the full truth, the good and the bad and everything in between. And so we pray that as we spend these next few moments together that you would enable us to hear your voice and understand your word and apply it to our lives. We pray that this time shared would be more than the next 30 or 40 minutes, but in fact that there would be, that you would be working in, in this room and in each life in such a way that there would be eternal impact. And that we would leave this place a changed people. Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. Open our ears to hear the call of Jesus. And empower our lives to follow Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine someone you know. Either an acquaintance or someone more than an acquaintance. Someone you respect and care for. A religious person who participates in religious activities. Someone who believes in God and who for the most part tries to live a decent, God-fearing life, someone who calls Christ the Lord, someone who knows that there is a heaven and a hell and therefore desires heaven, who understands the importance of one's eternal destiny. Now imagine this person coming to the end of his life And to that day, when he meets Jesus face to face uh, and suddenly realizes that he has made a terrible mistake. He has presumed upon God, and to his great alarm and dread, he is turned away from the kingdom of God. What would you say to that person? If you knew that person today and were given the opportunity to help him face that day when he will face the Lord, what would you say to him or her? What if you are that person? What if this isn't about someone else and their eternal encounter with Christ, what if this is about you and yours? That's what Jesus is getting at here. With his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, he's warning us, alerting us to something critically important, with great concern for us and our eternal well-being. He means to give us pause. I actually think He means to shock and frighten us in a good way. So that we would not merely go through life, going through the religious motions. These verses are meant to be a loving caution for us. First to assure us That we are true disciples of Christ then to motivate us to make true disciples of others. From these words, I find four observations I want to share with you this morning concerning the need for discipleship. And the first is this. False assurance is a real and present danger. False assurance is a real and present danger. Spiritual deception is real. Self-deception is common. There are people who think they are going to heaven but aren't. People who believe they are right with God but they are not. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, cautioned Jesus. Many, did you catch that? Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Some people are dangerously deceived. As evidenced here, they, they place false assurance in intellectual belief, in good works and in various religious experiences. Some place false assurance in intellectual belief. The people Jesus refers to here notice, notice they clearly believe certain truths. They believe in God. they believe in Christ. They believe in Christ as Lord, at least superficially. They believe in heaven. They believe in eternity. They believe in doing good. Lord, Lord, they say confidently. Listen, if these people were in our church today, I imagine they'd be well-respected among us. They may even be in places of leadership and influence because they, they seem to know so much. Their doctrine seems right on point. They have all the right answers and they're doing all the right things or so it seems and yet it profits them nothing in the final account because although they believe in Jesus, theirs is an intellectual belief only. Some people... They place false assurance in good works. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Yet to these Jesus will say, depart from me, you evildoers, or you workers of lawlessness. So here they are doing good works and Jesus Calls them evil doers. You know, because sin is not just something we do, but actually affects who we are by nature, we must realize that even our good works are as evil and lawless deeds when compared to the high and holy standard for which we were created. The prophet Isaiah understood this when he said that in our, um, in our unclean and fallen state, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Our works, though they may be good, fall, far shy, fall short of the mark and, and therefore cannot save. Some place false assurance in religious experiences Now, I don't know about you, but I have never cast out demons. So I can only imagine, I mean this, I can only imagine what an amazing, unforgettable experience that must be. To come to a man or a woman who is demon-possessed and speak into their life in the name of Jesus Christ and actually witness the transformation that follows as demons literally flee from their body what an incredible religious experience that must be. No wonder... These people thought they were right with God, but they weren't. And sometimes I fear we make a similar mistake. Though we may not cast out demons, certainly we've experienced other amazing things in which we're tempted to place false assurance. We've been on service projects and mission trips. We've served people in the name of the Lord and spoke to people about the Lord and seen people come to the Lord. I have seen with my own eyes people be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light from death to life i can i can recall vividly the scene the conversation almost the exact conversation we shared and the effect on their lives as the spirit of god drew them to christ it's incredible Maybe you've been to camps or crusades or conferences that have left an undeniable impression. Maybe you've responded to an altar call or something similar. Maybe you've repeated a prayer asking Jesus into your heart, or additional prayers of rededication because nothing seems to change. And none of these are inherently wrong, of course, but at the same time, hear this, none of these experiences, as memorable as they are, assure a person of forgiveness of sin and salvation to Christ and or entrance into heaven. Basically, Jesus is saying to place not your assurance in intellectual belief or in good works or in mere religious experiences because only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Which brings me to my second observation. The will of the Father is to trust the Son. Wouldn't you think, stay with me here, that prophesying, casting out demons, and doing many mighty works all in the name of Christ, mind you, would fall under God's will. And yet clearly Jesus distinguishes between God's will in verse 21 and our works in verse 22 which causes me to ask the question why aren't these good works listed that are listed in verse 22 acceptable to God? And the answer is because the will of God is not that we work our way to heaven, but that we trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son. You know, Jesus once said, this is the will of my Father that, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. God's overarching all-encompassing will for you is to look to Jesus and believe. Believe that Jesus is one with God, that He is God, and that He has come from heaven to earth to bring us, reconcile us to God. Believe that He lived among us as one of us, fully human and fully divine. Believe that He entered our fallen world and saw and felt the effects of sin firsthand. Believe that though like us, He's also unlike us because He's without sin. And yet because He's like God, revealing the heart and character of God, believe that He took our sins upon Himself and bore them willingly. Believe that on the cross, He paid sin's penalty in full. Believe that He substituted Himself in our place and paid it all. Believe that He rose from the dead and broke the chains of death so that anyone who places their full trust in Him will be saved from sin and death to life everlasting. Believe that in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, you are forgiven by God and fully welcomed into the family of God. This is the will of my Father that anyone and everyone who looks on the Son and believes, should have everlasting life. I want to read something for you. It's a little lengthy. It may make us go a little long, but I I think it's important. It's an, it's an excerpt from the book, Follow Me. In a chapter titled, catch this, in a chapter titled, Unconverted Believers. Author, Pastor David Platt tells the story of a college student in his church, a young woman named Jordan. And I want you to listen to Jordan's testimony in her own words. As I read this, I want to... Obviously, you'll see that this will relate to some of our younger people, but I think it relates to all of us as well. Jordan says, I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart at the age of five. This prayer temporarily served as a get out of hell free card while I continued to walk in sin. I looked better than all the other students in my youth group so this served to validate my faith. If this validation was not enough my parents and my pastors and my friends told me I was a Christian wherever I I went whenever I questioned my faith because I had prayed that prayer when I was five years old and, and I looked nice on the outside so they knew that For sure, I was in. But my heart was still not open to understanding grace. It was obvious that the prayer I prayed before was probably not going to cut it. And so what did I do? Well, I did what anybody would do who was not yet willing to admit their total brokenness and depravity before a holy God. I rededicated my life to Christ. A term, by the way, that was not coined in Scripture, I assure you. Yet I was still dead in my sin and not repentant. I still thought my good works committed in the past and those I would continue to do in the future, I thought they counted for something. I could save myself. I was sure of it. After all, I led Bible studies and went on mission trips, but none of that mattered. I was still, by nature, a child of wrath. During my freshman year of college, I was finally confronted with the extreme tension that rested between my sinful self and God's holy nature. And for the first time, I understand. I understood that the point of the cross was to justify the wrath of God that should have been directed toward me. I fell on my knees and in fear and trembling and adoration and tears and confessed my need for Jesus more than I needed anything else in the world. And now I am pleased to confess that I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then Platt concludes after years in the church, after years in the church, years of believing she was a Christian. Years of being told by people that she was a Christian. Jordan underwent a massive transformation in her life from knowing about Jesus to living in Jesus. This is what Jesus meant when he talked about new birth, when he talked with Nicodemus about. The necessity of new birth, saying that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By the way, as an aside, this is why, in some way, I try and feel it important that on every Sunday morning, in whatever text God is providing for us that, that morning, in some way, why I feel it's important to preach the basics of the gospel. Who we are, who God is, where we stand before God, and what God has done. And I know, I know that sometimes for some of us it may sound repetitive because it is, but I don't want to assume that everyone in this room is saved. And I want to provide opportunity each and every week. The will of the Father is to trust the Son. Number three, to trust Christ is to obey Christ. This is the point of the parable in 24 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Conversely, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And as you notice, the only difference between the wise and foolish man, according to Jesus, is that the former obeyed Christ. Christ. While the latter did not. Building your house on the rock is a metaphor for trusting Jesus, yet only the one who obeys Jesus truly trusts him. Did you hear that? Only the one who truly, or only the one who obeys Jesus truly trusts him. You know when Luke recorded this scene, he quotes Jesus saying, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord and do not do what I tell you?" That was their problem. Though they professed faith in Christ with their mouths, their lives told the real story. Even their works which they claimed were done in Christ's name were not not in real obedience to Christ. They had essentially bypassed Jesus and were instead striving in their own self righteousness. Because unless our works spring from a relationship with Christ, they merely prove how we try so hard to live apart from God. You know, I have a, an iPhone. How many of you have smart? Is there anyone who does not have a smartphone? Andrea Gladstone Jeannie Deadman. yes alright we have a few we'll pray for you no, <laughs> no we'll pray for you. exactly exactly pray for you. exactly <laughs> that's good I have an iPhone we all most of us do or a phone a smartphone I enjoy mine very much sometimes too much It's a great tool and it's a great toy because available to me are literally thousands of applications that enhance my use and enjoyment of the phone. And as you know, often these apps are offered in a light version. Meaning that before committing to purchase the full application, I can sample an abbreviated form However, though attractive at first, this presents a catch-22. On the one hand, sampling the shortened version keeps my options open and free from commitment. But on the other, the shortened version doesn't provide the full experience. And sometimes the full experience is what's needed. In this way, the light version is counterproductive. Though intended to persuade me toward commitment, it actually steers me away and reinforces my non committal tendencies. Now, it would seem that many so called Christians prefer light Christianity. And what I mean is that many people seek the benefits of Christianity without the behavior that must go with it. Remaining noncommittal, they profess faith in Christ, but rarely seek to actually obey Christ in the everyday. Christianity light, the attractiveness to it, the attraction, is that Christianity light allows us to keep our options open. To sample an abbreviated version that costs us nothing. Christianity light requires little from us and consequently does little for us, right? Because an abbreviated version of the Christian faith is no longer the Christian faith. When Jesus said, I never knew you, he was stressing a lack of relationship. Though they believed certain truths about Jesus and did works in his name, they didn't truly know or love him. Him. So, Sally and I recently celebrated 23 years of marriage. Woohoo! Who said that? Yeah, woohoo! And you know this, those of you who have been married for really any length of time, but especially those of you who have been married for a while. As much as we knew and loved each other when we were first married, I assure you we know and love each other more now. We've learned more about each other. And the more I learn about my wife, the more I learn what honors her, the more I want to honor her and continue learning. And so I want to say that growing in your relationship with Jesus Means desiring what honors him, learning what honors him, honoring him, and desiring to honor him even more. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter Christ's kingdom, but thankfully some will. Those who trust him, and because they trust him, they obey him. And then the fourth and final observation I want to draw from this text is that Jesus seeks not to simply enhance your life, but to save your life. Remember that he's talking about heaven and how one gets into heaven. The parable is primarily about eternal security. It's not only about two builders, two houses, and two foundations upon which the houses are built. It's also, isn't it, about two very different outcomes. Let's understand what it's not saying. It's not suggesting that you won't have hardship in life. In fact, it's clearly saying quite the opposite. Both builders and therefore both houses faced exactly the same difficult circumstances. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on each of their homes which is to say that the Christian life is not easy and that Christians are not immune to suffering. Christians get cancer. Christians experience the death of loved ones, even tragic and untimely deaths. Christians get laid off or lose their jobs unexpectedly. Christians have cars that break down and children that go astray and chronic pains that only seem to worsen. Christians face hardships like anyone else and many more in some cases because many Christians face and endure persecution at the hands of non-Christians. So this is not about applying Christian principles to your life to simply enhance your life. Yet unfortunately, we see and we hear it all the time, and frankly, it sickens me. We see and we hear speakers and authors promoting the idea, selling out conferences, packing arenas, Promoting the idea that if you simply follow biblical principles, then you will be successful in whatever you do. If you follow wise principles and quote, build your house on the rock, we're told that you're essentially guaranteed success in business, in parenting, in money management, in growing a church, in ministry, Simply plug the variables of your life into the formula of, quote, wise building, and success will be the natural result. You'll have a successful business, you'll have perfect children, the model family, you'll have a comfortable retirement. and you'll have a thriving church. But it doesn't work that way. The obvious problem here with that mindset is that we don't even know all the variables in our lives, much less can we control them. You can't control the rains that fall. You can't control the floods that come. You can't control the winds that blow and beat against your house. You have absolutely zero control over those things. But you know who has control over those things? God. And God alone. The parable, listen, is not about how you build your house. But on what you build your house, or better yet, on whom you build your house. This isn't about trusting Jesus for an easier life, it's about trusting Jesus for life. It's saying that trusting in Jesus is like placing your life upon a rock that cannot be shaken. So that no matter how heavy the rains pour, no matter how high the floods rise, no matter how hard the winds blow, you will stand. You will stand and survive and enjoy life everlasting because He Is Lord. He is, in the words of the Apostle Peter, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do not neglect these four truths. False assurance is a real and present danger. The will of the Father is to trust the Son. To trust Christ is to obey Christ. And number four, Jesus seeks not to simply enhance your life, but to save your life. Now let me close or try to with some application. How do we apply these things? And then given our theme of discipleship, how do these things speak to that theme? And I think in in at least two ways. For inferred from this text, I think, is a call to repent as well as a motivation to disciple. As he concludes his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls for response, and perhaps that response is best summed in the word repent you know we sometimes think of repentance negatively like an unwanted chore that God imposes upon us but just pause to consider for a moment the alternative Jesus could have said it's too late for you I'm done with you cannot help you you gotta fix your own life Or he could have just let us go on our merry way, paying no attention to the fact that our sins separate us from God and destined us for hell. He could have done or said any of these things and more, but he didn't, and this is good news. That Jesus calls us to repent is good news. It's grace. It's God's kindness toward you, and according to the Scriptures, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So that you turn from going your own way to go the way of Christ instead. Repentance is about the transformation of your mind, your heart, and your life so that you begin to think differently and feel differently and live differently as you walk with Jesus. Where where in your life is God calling you to repent? Hear the call to faith and turn to Christ. True discipleship always begins with true repentance. And repentance is primarily between you and God, but there's a second application here that affects your relationships with others also. And that I think this passage motivates us to disciple others. and to do so faithfully. Being faithful to God and His Word and the truth of the Gospel. This text cautions us to not assume that people know and understand the Gospel even if it seems they do. This text teaches us to not try to persuade people toward Christ simply by presenting Him as an enhancement, a mere add-on to their already self-reliant lifestyle. And this text exhorts us, maybe more than anything else, it exhorts us to not avoid talking with people about eternal things and their eternal destiny. When I asked you earlier to imagine a person you know who thinks they're on the right path but isn't. It was to awaken you just as Jesus awakens us here to the need for true discipleship. Everyone will come to the end of their lives. And to that day when they meet Jesus face to face, and many who assumed that heaven was theirs, will find hell instead. And so let that motivate not only your own discipleship, but your discipling efforts as well. It's not optional, but necessary. Jesus calls us to assess our lives, avoid empty religion, fully entrust ourselves to him, and help others do the same. Amen. been like to stand in the crowds at the Sermon on the Mount, and with one topic or theme or observation after another, Jesus begins pinpointing the many ways we've misunderstood God. And then to come to the end of that great sermon and hear him say that many who think they're on the right path are not. Will you please work in each heart here that we may have true assurance of faith And help others do the same. For your glory and for our eternal good. Amen.